Thank you very much, Travis and Laura, for ministering in music. As we think about interacting with God's Word, keep in mind that uh, interacting with God's Word is my prayer, my preparation, my ministry of God's Word, but also as we hear God's Word, we listen with an intent to apply it in our lives and seek to let God work in us. So we listen with an eagerness and a willingness to hear God live out what he has to say. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us Christ, the living word. We thank you, too, for the Bible, the written word. And it's our desire to hear with an intent to apply, ultimately for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. David was sitting at his computer one evening. His wife and teenage children had gone to bed. And as was, he, as was his custom, he was looking some things up on the computer. And while he's looking some things up on the computer, something flashed up. The screen, and uh, it was something in the past that he had always said, I want to ignore that. I don't want to go there. And this particular night, he clicked on that particular image, and that led him down a road to some other images that were not good. And after a few minutes, he thought, you know, this isn't good, and I shouldn't be going down this road any further. And about 10 minutes later, he finally said, I need to get out of here, and he did. And he felt bad about what had happened. And he said, I'll never do that again. A couple nights later, as he was sitting again at the computer, and his wife and teenage children had gone to bed, there was a temptation, and he yielded to the temptation And he went down that road again. And each time it became easier for him to get down that road. But each time he said, I really shouldn't be going down that path. And after about six months of this, someone came up to David and said, David, I've noticed a change in you. The attitude of your heart towards your wife is different. The attitude of your heart towards your children is different. And I've been observing as you come to church that you're different. I can't put my finger on anything specific, but there's something different about you. Would you care to share with me? Are you yielding to some temptation? And David acknowledged to his friend, he said, here's what has been happening for the last six months. And his friend in love and in grace said, do you want to... Repent and turn from it. And after some thought, David said, Yes, I choose to turn from it. And he interacted some more with his friend, and after an hour or so of interacting and praying and crying together and genuine repentance, David said, 
I need to acknowledge this to my wife. I need to acknowledge this to my kids because they have been influenced in ways that I did not desire for them to be influenced. And I'm going to go to the pastor and to the elders and I'm going to acknowledge to them my sin because the body of Christ has been influenced and I at least need to address the leaders. And he said to his friend, I also need to do something about the internet that I have no access to the internet for at least a period of time. And I'm going to ask you as a friend and I'm going to ask the pastor and elders to help me deal with my desire because I don't want to approach this merely as action but from the heart because I am sorry. There's a godly sorrow from my sin and there's a repentance and I want to experience salvation. Paul, as he writes to the church in Corinth, there's some type of situation that they need to address. Some people think it's the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians where they needed to address the man who was living in immorality. They needed to put him out of the church and desire that he would come to repentance. Depends who you read. Some scholars would say he wrote another letter about a situation. But either way, it was a strong letter, and he desired for them to have godly sorrow and repentance. So when he writes 2 Corinthians and in chapter 7, Paul is sharing what is happening, how the Corinthians had responded. And in the context of sharing that, that's a relationship with God for the Corinthians and Paul. But the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians is also very rich. And in that relationship, he shares how they responded. He thanks God for them, the fact that he could have joy. We'll pick up reading with verse 8 of Second Corinthians 7. He says, even if I cause sorrow by my letter, and again, which letter? Was it First Corinthians or some letter that we don't have? He says, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. And then he goes on in the balance of the chapter to share how they had responded and the fact that he is thankful for them. Paul says in the passage we read that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance results in salvation and no regret. And we discussed those terms last week. 
And then he says, you displayed an earnestness, an eagerness, an indignation, and so on in your response. So a godly sorrow led to repentance, led to salvation, and no regret. And he says this godly sorrow displayed an earnestness. There was a haste. When you became aware of the situation, you were quick to respond to it. There was a diligent application. You were eager. You were willing to make a defense. You were willing to respond. He says there was indignation. There was a vexation. There was a pain. As Paul pointed out, their sin. And then they were willing to respond to it. There was an alarm. There was a fear. There was an astonishment that we even did this or responded in this way. Paul says there was a longing. There was a strong desire to handle this correctly. There was a concern. They were devoted to responding. They wanted to see justice done. They wanted to be sure they responded correctly and handled everybody involved in a correct way. Notice what Paul says in the middle of verse 11. At every point, you proved yourself to be innocent in this manner. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did wrong or the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we're encouraged. So here's a case where Paul confronted people. There was a response. And the result was, in the middle of verse 13, in addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I boasted to him about you. And you have not embarrassed me. Again, the Corinthians were responsive. In the same passage, he talks about worldly sorrow that brings death. Now, I want you to think about your life for a second. I'm not going to ask you to verbally respond, but I want you to think about your life. Something in your life that is a struggle that you just can't seem to get over. It just seems to be an ongoing struggle. Or maybe some sin that just seems to have a grip on you. You say, I would like to change, but I don't seem to make any headway. But I want you to think about that. Get that in your mind. And as we discuss worldly sorrow and death, think about that. Make application to yourself. Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow is a pattern of thought that kind of just lets God out. So David was sitting down before the computer and as month after month after month went by, he was more and more letting God out of the picture. And he's thinking, what's well, really no big deal? Worldly sorrow doesn't bring God, doesn't bring Scripture to play on the situation. 
Worldly sorrow is sorrow over one's selfish goal being hindered. Now, those of you who are parents, I don't care what age your kids are, I think there are points in time that you have displayed worldly sorrow about your children. You're upset at your child's obedience, or in the past you were upset at your child's obedience because they frustrated your goal of looking like a good parent. And then you respond to your kids, why don't you? And whatever else you might say. See, that's worldly sorrow. Your goal of looking good as a parent was hindered by your child. That's a sorrow that one selfish goal was hindered. Worldly sorrow is a sorrow because one get caught. It's like a teenager sneaking in the door at 11.30 when he was supposed to be home at 10. And all of a sudden, he hears dad say, Son, and he turns around and says, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He's sorry he got caught. If Dad had not caught him, he would have went to bed and never said a word to Dad. He had no intention of getting up the next morning and saying, Dad, I just want you to know that I came in at 11.30 last night rather than my curfew time. That's a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is a focus on how self sees the offense and how it affects self. I've heard this happen, and it just cuts me to the core. The times that I've heard it happen, where a parent is saying to a 18, 19, 20-year-old child, son, daughter, you really messed up my life by how you have lived. You've given me all kinds of grief. But mom or dad never says anything about how they may have responded incorrectly to their child as they were growing up. A focus on self rather than on God. A focus on self and how it affects self. An example of worldly sorrow would be King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find that Saul as king was to go to the Amalekites and he was to wipe them out. We know that Saul partially obeyed. Samuel comes to King Saul to confront him. And in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, but Samuel replied, this is after Saul made some justification. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel is taking Saul to the heart. There's been rebellion here. There's been disobedience. 
And notice, after Samuel says in verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And then in verse 30, Samuel says, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. As you read about Saul, there was a sorrow, but it wasn't a godly sorrow. There wasn't a brokenness of going before God. There was a concern on self, how will I appear as king? And so on. Some examples from our lives today. If they know about it, they won't accept me, so I don't want them to know about my sin. No protection of self. Others will think less of me if they know about that, so I don't want them to know about it. I've got to protect myself. A worldly sorrow is an unwillingness to accept the consequences and seek repentance. Rather, there's a seeking a way out. Worldly sorrow wants a way out. A bargaining. So a kid gets in trouble at school and he says to the teacher, please don't tell my parents. I'll obey for the rest of the school year. There's not a godly sorrow. If there was a godly sorrow, he would say, go ahead, tell my parents, and I know my parents will discipline me, but that's okay. I did wrong. I violated the standard. I'll deal with the consequence. A worldly sorrow seeks to protect self, not open and vulnerable. It seeks to hide. God came to Adam, and what did Adam do? Adam said, it's this woman you gave to be with me. See, there's a blaming, there's a hiding. Adam didn't say, God, you told me if I eat of the fruit of the tree that I'll experience death. He blamed a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is just unwilling to admit sin. Now think about the area of your life that struggle or sin. Do you have a worldly sorrow? Or a godly sorrow. Many believers are tempted to repent with a worldly sorrow. Thus they remain stuck in habits. They remain stuck in sins. Because there's not been a godly sorrow. Saul, as you look at his life after disobedience in 1 Samuel 15 was basically stuck the balance of his life. No godly sorrow. That stands in contrast to David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, had Uriah murdered, and in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, his repentance is displayed. He got out of being stuck, and he wrote psalms after that. I'm not going to answer that or this next question this morning, but how does this passage apply to a local church? Apparently, Paul expects a local church to display godly sorrow or a church can display worldly sorrow. 
How does it apply to the church? Think about that. But Paul goes on and he says this, worldly sorrow brings death. Now death doesn't take a brilliant scholar to figure out that death is an extraction of life. You see, the Corinthians didn't die in the spot, did they? He's writing to them. The death that seems to be involved here in the passage is the extraction of a dynamic relationship with other believers and with God through Christ. It's not an immediate physical death. In the context, the idea seems to be one's relationships with the Lord and other believers is deeply impacted in a negative manner. It moves one further and further from the Lord. The one and others are not applied. You know, you just kind of back away. It's like David I referred to earlier. He didn't want to get too close to anyone because they might speak to him. You can usually tell when there's a worldly sorrow because the relationship with other people changes. Observe people. But think about your own life. Death, their regrets. Well, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I would have done this. There's consequences and some decisions that are almost irreversible. King Saul, his refusal to deal with his sin in 1 Samuel 15, basically set the course of his life for the balance of his life. He was trying to kill David later. He had all kinds of difficulties. And it influenced his family very, very deeply. Some things, when there's worldly sorrow, are almost irreversible. There is hiding, there is blaming, there is a lack of freedom, which deeply impacts one's relationships. So David's wife says to David, what were you doing last night in the computer? Well, I was just checking out some things. That stands in contrast to him saying, I was in some stuff that I, in some websites that I should not have been wrong. It was sin, it's degrading to you, and so on. See, death involves hiding. Blaming a lack of freedom in one's relationships. Think about our area. How much blaming takes place? How much blaming takes place in the local church? Think of churches that you might know of where there's some conflict and there's blaming and there's division. That all ties in with death. Choosing to ignore reality in one's life. That ties in with the idea of death as you look at death in the context of relationships. You just ignore reality. 
like saying to a fellow, the way you're treating your children is going to result in some major issues when your children move into the teen years. You talk down to them. You correct them, but it's not for their well-being. And the man says, don't worry about it. Things will be fine. And then when his 16-year-old son says to him, years later, when he tries to talk to him some things about life, and the son says, Dad, you're a big jerk. He ignored reality, which led to death, which continued to influence relationships. Death involves the idea of just realizing in practice that ignoring sin, having a worldly sorrow, does come home to roost. A 24-year-old daughter getting married to the guy she loves. And she says to her father, Dad, you would like to me like to walk me down the aisle. I'm not sure I want you to. The reason I'm not sure I want you to is because when I was six years old, I came home from school and you treated me terrible. I remember that. You never admitted you were wrong. You never addressed it. And for years, before my teen years, you talked down to me. You were negative. You were critical. I never did anything right. I remember coming home from my first date. I came home on time. My guy treated me well. And you accused me of doing wrong in the date. And during the teen years, there were other things. Dad, you have hurt me deeply. Not once did you come to me and apologize and ask my forgiveness. I love you, Dad, and I care for you. But I'm really struggling in even letting you be part of the wedding. Do you see, Dad, that you're reaping the consequences of what you have sown for years? There's been no godly sorrow. And it so happened in that case. That is what broke dad. And a couple weeks later, he came to his daughter in deep, deep sorrow and brokenness, a genuine sorrow, a genuine repentance. And publicly, he decided before the body of believers, he would apologize because it was obvious to others that he was not responding correctly to his daughter for years and sought their forgiveness. See, one is worldly sorrow. The other is godly sorrow.
Worldly sorrow is an ongoing contentment in the status quo. Ongoing contentment in the status quo. Last week I mentioned that I, when we, Ruth Ann and I first got married, I was a very quiet guy. I didn't have a lot to say to Ruth Ann. And I didn't have a lot to say to Ruth Ann. If she wanted to know, she could ask, and I could answer very briefly. <clears throat> if I had continued in that status quo, that would be worldly repentance, or I'm sorry, worldly sorrow. Just, there's no big deal. Just go on. Worldly sorrow never admits wrong. Thus, self is king. Selfishness, is, selfishness results. And there is pride. Paul says, worldly sorrow leads to the items that we have been discussing. As you think about your life, as we think about the body of Christ at large, as we think about our local church, is part of the reason there is passivity and maybe not a maturing in the Lord and maybe not a growing walk with God, go back to a worldly sorrow. We give up pursuing God, and that leads to difficulty. Think about our local church. Think about other local churches. Do churches as a unit display godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Our ongoing struggles with certain desires and temptations directly related to a lack of godly sorrow and repentance. Do standstill believers communicate worldly sorrow? Is a lack of godly sorrow and repentance related to a failure to act on Scripture? Think about areas of your life you need to say, God, I don't want Worldly sorrow, I want godly sorrow. <coughs> Judas would have displayed a worldly sorrow. And I want to close with a true story of worldly sorrow. There were some church leaders that seem to experience within their church ongoing struggles. It would seem to get over one struggle and things would go along pretty good for a couple of years and then something else would come up and the church had divided a number of times. (coughs) 
And the leaders finally decided that they would have someone come and talk to them as leaders and talk to the pastor. And several people talked to the leaders and interacted with the pastor and recommended some action. And the leaders said, no, we're going to continue status quo. We're going to continue as we have been doing. In essence, they were making a choice. We want to continue in worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow. Those leaders passed off the scene. And some other leaders came on the scene. And the new leaders said, we do not understand. We have a lot of divorce taking place in our church. We have a lot of relational conflict. Few of our kids want to walk with God. They seem resistant to their parents. What's going on? What was going on? They were experiencing death. Years earlier, pastor and leaders set some direction with worldly sorrow. The future generation is reaping death. You say, is that true? Yes. And in that particular setting, I have said to the pastor, have you considered your history? Maybe there needs to be some church repentance for what took place in the past. Display godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. So I'm asking you, are there things in your life that you need to display a godly sorrow? As a body of believers, are we open to displaying godly sorrow if there are things that or out of whack in our relationships. Paul writes to the Corinthians, the cause for repentance. Paul wrote to the Galatians and said, you're wrong. Repentance was required. He's writing to the Colossians. And he addresses some things that repentance was required. And that seems to be present quite often in Scripture. We go astray, calling to godly sorrow rather than worldly sorrow. The Lord has spoken to you. Will you respond as we sing together as Travis comes?